Apologies. Oh my gosh. You're listening to Ah Geez, a Fargo recap podcast from Minnesota Public Radio. We provide an authentic Minnesota perspective on a TV show named after a city in North Dakota. I'm Tracy Mumford. I'm a producer for NPR News. I'm Jay Gabler. I write for The Current. And wow, episode one. Right. Excuse me while I step out of my red Corvette here. Just, yes. Uh, don't mind me ace if I'm hole. a little bit of an ace hole. All right. So let's just talk about where this started because we did not start in Minnesota. We did not even start in the Midwest. We started in Berlin. Jay, what? What? What is happening here? And we start from, if you like watch carefully, we come from inside of the microphone. The camera comes out from inside of the microphone that's hanging over this East German government official's desk. And he is interrogating poor Jacob Underleiter. Right. We are back in 1988. This poor guy, is, it's a case of mistaken identity, which Fargo loves. Yes. Um, this guy happens to share an address with a man who's wanted for murder. And the interrogator is really not going to accept that he is not Yuri. Yeah, you live at this address. You must be Yuri Gurka. And we know that Yuri Gurka just strangled his girlfriend, Helga. So significantly, Yuri Gurka, we know, is 20 years old. This is 1988. So this guy is born in 1968. Where are we going to encounter Yuri again? We're not going to know that this German field trip of sorts will pay off until later in the season. Yes. But that's why I love Fargo. So we spend this weird minute in Berlin, but then bam, we are Back in Minnesota, we're in Eden Prairie, to be specific. It is Emmett Stussy's 25th anniversary party. He's got valet. He's got ice sculptures. Like, if you had any doubt about his wealth, he is just showing it off here. Yeah, and you get that iconic Fargo theme, Carter Burwell's theme from the movie sort of surges as we pan in, just to kind of remind us where we are. And there's snow on the ground, because in case you didn't know, it is always winter in Minnesota. It's Um, always winter. Right. And it's never really a sign of, like, a close, functional family if you have to go through someone's lawyer to get five minutes to see your brother, which is what's happening here. Yeah. So it's Emmett's anniversary party, but he's a little preoccupied because he and his right-hand man, Cy, have been trying to contact someone, but they're getting nothing on the other end of the line but clicks and buzzers. Clicks and buzzers. Not even possible to leave a message. We had tried to formulate this theory last season about um, if you should trust people with mustaches in Fargo, and I don't know that we've been able to definitively get an answer on that, but Cy, Emmett's lawyer and sidekick, is rocking a serious walrus walrus mustache, um, as is Ray Stussy. So I think we're going to have a little more fodder for our mustache theory this season. Could be. Yeah. So they're trying to figure out from this guy named Buck. Did Buck vouch for this mysterious person who they're trying to contact? Maybe, maybe not. So they're trying to figure all this out. But back to the anniversary party. Emmett's wife tells this charming slash stalkerish story about how when they met, she realized they had once lived in the same apartment or she lived there before he did. And she still had the key. (laughs) And so he's like, oh, she just moved in a week later and never left. I was like, I guess that's That's cute. cute. Yeah, I, sure. Yeah. That's that's great. But it was interesting to me, right, because you have this case of like sharing an address and it harkens back to Berlin where there's this confusion over the address. And as we know, as this episode gets going, there's a serious confusion over another address. Oh, so this good is catch. something they're picking up here. So Ray is basically, he looks super uncomfortable at this swanky party. He's got his uh, fiance in this fabulous fur coat next to him, Nikki Swango, 
I'm going to call it here. Mary Elizabeth Winstead is going to be one of my favorite people to watch in this season. She is this parolee. She's this competitive bridge player. And she looks super out of place at this anniversary party. Yeah. In the universe of Fargo, there are always the characters who just can never quite get it together. No matter how much they plan, they're going to mess everything up. And then there are the characters who, you know, are going to nail it. Right. right? Even if with no preparation, no planning, they're going to do what needs to be done. And clearly, Nikki Swango is one of those people in this universe. Right. But Ray, (laughs) who she's with, is exactly the opposite, right? So we are going to see that tension here. But what Ray is there to shake down Emmett for is the stamp, the all-important stamp. It is framed. It is hanging on the wall. It is this very rare, very valuable stamp that their father left to them. Which one of them? There's a little bit of tension over that. Ray feels like it's rightfully his stamp, and he'd like to take it back because he wants to get Nikki Swango a nice ring. Yeah, and it says, you know, just not not the best time. And meanwhile, I love one of these little character details that comes out is that while they're making small talk before the talk comes around to money, we learn that... Uh, Poor Ray actually was not invited to his niece's wedding. And it was in Cabo. <laughs> it was in Cabo. But Sai yeah. went. Ray's like, Sai, you went? So I was like, listen, we had some business contacts down there, investors. He missed his chance to get out for the winter. He missed the Cabo trip. I'd be upset too. Yeah. Did you look at the stamp? This occurred to me last night. I was staring at the stamp. It's this two cent valuable stamp. Right. And it's got a guy pushing a rock up a hill on it. <sighs> Call back to season two. We are having some serious Sisyphus callbacks here. Um, I saw that and I was like, oh my God. So we don't have much of a connection to last season just yet, but clearly Noah Hawley is at least winking at us that there's going to be more of these little tosses to people who obsessively watch season two like we did. Yeah. So Ray has to go back down empty handed. It gets in his classy car with his classy lady and in a cloud of exhaust, they they drive off to get themselves a real drink. Right. So, OK, we've met the Stussy brothers at this point. Um, we have a little little sense of their different financial issues. They both have serious issues. But now we head into Eden Valley. Right. We're leaving Eden Prairie for Eden Valley, where we meet Gloria Burgle, played by Carrie Coon. She is this single mother cop picking her son up at a red owl. So Red Owl, Cohen Brothers devotees will recognize that there was also a red owl in the movie A Serious Man. Those of you who don't live in Minnesota may not be familiar with Red Owl Mythos, a beloved, iconic Minnesota grocery store chain. However, it is also defunct. Since 1988, there have not been any new red owls, maybe a couple still around the state, definitely not in Eden Valley. Right. So this is a little bit of Coen Brothers nostalgia. So we get the sense that Eden Valley is this small, small place, which is true. It's a real place. And their police force is going to get swallowed up by the county. So Carrie Coon, playing Gloria Burgle, is a chief of police who may soon not be the chief of anything. She may not even have a job, really, once this whole merger shakes out. Yeah. But in the meantime, she's going to take care of her son, going to see Pops for dinner tonight. And we cut back to Ray, who has now concocted a plan to get his stamp. Which just makes sense, right? Because he is a parole officer. And if you need someone to commit a crime for you, that's pretty convenient, right? You've got instant access. <laughs> yeah, whether you're looking for an awesome ex-con to date or an awesome ex-con, maybe a little less awesome ex-con to do a little Robin right, for some, you. There's some serious work perks in it for Ray here. But he picks probably the most vacant-minded parolee that he could, Maurice Lafay, who uh, has some, you know, a past of breaking in and stealing things. So he just failed one of his drug tests, which, side note, Fargo wins points for the most cinematic drug test sequence I have 
ever seen. Yes. Um, Set to the song Moanin' by Lambert and Hendrix and Ross, if you want to add that to your uh, Spotify starred tracks. Every morning find me moaning. Yes, Lord. Because of all the trouble I see. Yes, Lord. Life's a losing gamble to me. Yes, Lord. Maurice has failed his drug test, and Ray makes him the very simple offer. You break into my brother's house, get me my stamp back, and this drug test never happened. And in fairness to Maurice, Maurice is a little confused because it seems like kind of a low-stake burgling situation. Just like, wait, a stamp? Some, I don't know, how, why, why, and it belongs to you, you say, Ray? How does this, how does this all work? And Ray's like, listen, just don't worry about it. Just go get the stamp. It's not that hard. Here's the name. Here's the address. Go. Yeah, he writes it down on like um, the tackiest notepad possible. Um, he writes down his brother's address. Uh, you, so this seems simple, right? But it's Fargo. And Fargo is all about... Uh, Plans gone horribly wrong. Simple things with terrible consequences. So the minute he hands that paper to Maurice, we just know this isn't going to go the way he thinks. Yeah, that to-do is not going to get to done. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, speaking of things going wrong, back at the Emmett Stussy house, he gets a call uh, over dinner time from Cy, who's like, oh, can't say much on the phone, Emmett, but uh, that uh, representative of that person we've been trying to reach is here. You better come into the office. Right. So he takes off his house shoes. <laughs> Almost forgetting to take off his house shoes, which is Minnesotan for slippers. Right. Uh, And he heads on down to his office where we get to meet David Thewlis playing V.M. Varga. His teeth may be the real window to his soul on this one. They are gnarled and nasty and not just in your stereotypical British way. Yes. And he's very uh, laid back for this late night meeting about a million dollars that are owed to him, you would think you'd be ready to, you know, have uh, have Emmett write out that check to you. And Emmett is all set to pay this million dollars back. But right. uh, VM Fargo's like, no, nah, keep it. This is such an interesting twist on the loan gone wrong, right? Normally it's that you can't pay it back. But Emmett has the money. VM Varga just doesn't want it. Yeah. He's like, oh, no, no, that was not a loan. That was an investment. Yeah. I now own part of Stussy Lots Limited and I'm going to keep pouring my money through here. Um, It takes Emmett a little while to realize what's happening here, but he has now become the stooge for a money laundering operation. And I just, I, I love the Emmett Psy dynamic, right? Because, you know, Psy is this kind of like, you, this he's kind of meant to be the, the heavy, the, you know, the, the person who's going to get stuff done in Emmett's life. And it's kind of reminiscent of the Wade Gustafson, Stan Grossman dynamic from the mm-hmm. movie. But Psy, we are starting to learn, is no Stan Grossman. <laughs> So I always kind of has this like kind of like empty, confused look like, oh, I think I'm supposed to be doing something here or saying something here. And I don't quite know what that is. It's this like really tense, eerie standoff between VM Varga and Emmett. I loved it. I was definitely worried that no one would be able to top what Bokeem Woodbine did last season in terms of this like shady, eccentric evil force, but David Thewlis is definitely setting up the stakes for me here. Um, I do have to point that my favorite part of the scene is that Emmett has a giant framed picture of a parking garage hanging in his office. Like, this man loves parking lots like nothing else. He's the parking lot king. That is really a thing to be proud of in Minnesota. Um, So while Emmett is learning a very difficult truth about his uh, new business operation, Maurice is attempting to go out on his burgling errand. He has a lot to balance, right? He's uh, he's smoking pot and he's talking to his therapist 
on the phone. Yes. And he's holding on to this piece of paper. That's a lot to be doing at the same time. And out the window goes the slip of paper with Emmett's address on it. Right. So now here we are at a Minnesota roadside in the snow, illuminated by car headlights. Things are getting desperate. We're in a very, very familiar Fargo scenario here. You almost sort of wonder if he's going to stumble across a snow scraper or something. Right. Or a pile of money. But so here's the interesting thing for me. This TV show is supposed to be set in 2010. Yes. And we've seen some people like texting or using cell phones and we've seen inflatable Christmas decorations. So we know that it is modern times, but it doesn't really feel like it. They're writing things down. And when Maurice loses the paper, what does he do? He goes to the gas station and demands to see a phone book. Yeah. Okay. When was the last time anyone pulled the phone book out from behind a gas station counter to look up an address? Seemingly a little bit more often in Eden Valley than in maybe Minneapolis. Right. So that's the crucial mistake, right? Maurice... Is he's remembering? He's trying to remember where Emmett lives. He thinks it was somewhere biblical. Um, he sees a sign for Eden Valley, and he's like, "Oh, that must be." That's it. Good. how many towns can there be named Eden in Minnesota? It and, turns out just two. There's and, a big difference between those two. I'm going to be a little bit of a geography stickler here for a second. Eden Valley and Eden Prairie are 80 miles apart, so this is a very wrong turn if you want to be really nitpicky about geography here for Maurice to make. But anyways, he heads to Eden Valley. He goes through this phone book, and he finds a Stussy. Yeah. Is these dusty? No, but it's Ace Dusty. Yeah, and and unsubtly, which is funny given a reference he makes later to using a little psychology to kind of outwit this grocery store clerk, he he yells out triumphantly, Stussy, as he rips the page out of the phone book, lest there be any doubt about where Maurice is heading. Right, so where he is heading is uh, to the old man's house we met earlier. He is Gloria Burgle's stepfather. He's old, he's kind of crotchety, he loves his beer, and he's having Gloria and her son over for dinner. Gloria and her son have left by this point that happened a little earlier in the episode and it was nathan's you know there was a nice little present given to nathan from his you know step-grandfather is this little like sort of carved figure and there was some grumpy talk we learned that gloria's ex-husband is now with another man so nathan kind of like has a another kind of stepfather figure going on there but anyway they're on their way home we realize that nathan has forgotten the figure so they need to turn around and come back to the step-grandfather's house right but by the time gloria gets there uh, maurice has already done his work. So she finds Ennis, who is the name um, of the old man, Ennis Stussy, yep. uh, duct taped to a chair in the kitchen, um, very dead, right? The mist of the freezer is kind of rolling over him. His eyes are glazed over. There's no questions here. He's he's absolutely gone. Yeah. Um, and she thinks she hears something upstairs. She runs outside. She gets her pump action shotgun. Like She's going to take down whoever this is. But uh, Maurice has already fled the coop. Yes. Uh, She does discover while she's searching the house, this box beneath the floorboard that seemingly she had never discovered before. But she lifts this trapdoor and lifts out a box. And what's in the box but a series of science fiction novels, one of which has an illustration of a space person and a robot in a pose very similar to the two Fisher people in this little figure that Ennis has carved for Nathan. So dun dun dun. What does it mean? We thought we left sci-fi behind last season with the UFOs, but clearly no Holly is not ready to let this go just yet. So we get our first hint of some weird sci-fi thing that's going to be wrapped up in season three. At this point, Maurice shows up somewhere very unexpected now after his little errand. Nikki and Ray are in high spirits. Why? Because they have triumphed at the Wildcat Regional. And by triumph, I mean they got third runner-up. Hey now, 
In the Olympics, that's bronze. Well, that's what they think. Isn't third runner-up actually fourth place? <laughs> it's very confusing. Anyways, they are taking a victory bath after yes. their um, bridge escapades. Candles, you know, Ray's skullet. What, what could be more romantic than this? Well, it's when a man bursts into the bathroom. Yeah. So Maurice shows up at Nikki's place. Interrupting their social media posting. They right. had their phones out <laughs> yeah. so Nikki can post uh, their victory to uh, to Facebook. But yeah, in comes Maurice, and he is upset because this is not this what seems like a very simple job has not gone as well as he hoped. I feel like he has the best line of the episode here. Right? He says, um, I'm not going to lie. It didn't go smooth. <laughs> Did not go smooth <laughs> at all. Can be That could sum up all of Fargo, really. Um, it never goes how you think you're going to go. And he's like, basically, I hope you weren't friends with the guy who had those stamps because he's dead. But here you go. Here are your stamps. Right. They're literally stamps. It's a sheet of regular postage stamps. It is not that crazy valuable stamp that Ray really yeah. wanted. And again, in fairness to Maurice, Ray never really, we didn't hear Ray explain, no, it's a framed stamp on a wall behind the desk. I, we didn't really, maybe that information was changed. Anyway, Maurice has brought the wrong stamps. Ray is incensed, jumps out of the tub, and gets physical with Maurice, which causes Maurice to pull a gun. Yep, there's a scuffle here, and basically Maurice doesn't care if he got the wrong stamps or he killed the wrong guy. He needs $5,000 to get out of town now, and he gives Ray one day to get it for him. So instead of making money on this venture, Ray has instead incurred another debt. Right. And a scheme to distract him and disarm him by having sort of Nikki climb out of the tub nude. Ray is not great enough at grabbing the gun. It doesn't work. And so, yeah, Maurice takes off down the stairs. He's like, all right, give me my money. That's I'm done with you. The minute he leaves, Nikki starts counting, right? And you're like, what is she doing? She's counting. She grabs her screwdriver. She's banging on the air conditioning unit in her window. She's banging. She's counting. She's keeping watch out the window. She has this whole scheme going and you're like, I feel like she's done this before. She's thought about this. (laughs) Yeah. And her timing is perfect because the minute Maurice steps out of this apartment building, Ray gives that air conditioning unit one final kick and splat. This is really a very tender relationship between these two. And the actors were clear in interviews beforehand. They're like, you know, this might seem like some kind of exploitive relationship, but it's actually a very sweet love relationship. And you see how, you know, Nikki is so moved when she finds out that Ray has hired this guy to steal the stamp so to buy her a ring. And then similarly, Ray is just like over the moon. You see like the hearts in his eyes when he realizes that Nikki has correctly figured this all out and they have very successfully dropped an air conditioning unit on Maurice. Right? There's nothing like killing a man together that really brings the couple closer. We definitely learned that last season, right? You. You're so sexy. Yes, officer. I'll stay on the line. Don't forget the stamps. What? Nikki's even ready for the next step. She has, it turns out, taken out this apartment under a false name. She has ID. She calls 911 in fake tears, saying there's been a terrible accident, and then very quietly says to Ray, you need to leave. You're his parole officer. Oh, and also take the stamps and burn them. I love you. Bye. Right. Again, it's like, whoa, she has done this before. Anyway, so by the time we end this episode, um, our body count is at two. Yep. Um, R.I.P. Ennis and Maurice LeFay. Yep. Um, what I thought was interesting here is Mar- uh, when they find Ennis, he's kind of got the light of the freezer washing over him. It's very cold. And then obviously Maurice dies by an air conditioning unit here. So the theme of this episode is the cold is deadly in yes. Minnesota um, in unexpected ways. Episode ends and uh, on to the next one. Things to think about for next week. East 
German connection. When is it going to all make sense? Uh, that's going to take a while to play out. I mean, these are, he likes to play these long games with us, Noah Holly. We see what you're doing here. I, I'm going to uh, renew my concerns about the Minnesota accent coming from our Scottish friend playing two roles. He has sold me on playing both roles. By the end of the episode, I was thinking of them as completely separate people. It didn't matter to me that they were both Ewan McGregor, but their accents are still tripping me up. Um, I did read an interesting thing where he said to kind of get the accent down, he actually memorized part of Tim O'Brien's book in the Lake of the Woods. And Um, that's what he goes back to, to like get in the mindset of this Minnesota accent. Uh, That's very interesting to me. If you haven't read that book yet, you should. If you like Fargo, you will also like that book. So the episode title, let's talk about the episode title. It's The Law of Vacant Places, which, like the title of the second episode coming up, is named after a bridge idea, if you will, a law. So the idea of the law of vacant places is that if you're trying to compute the probability regarding where a card that you want to know is, what you need to understand is where the vacant places are, right? You're looking at the other three players on the table, and you know what some of their cards are. You don't know what all of their cards are. So if you can figure out where the vacant places are, meaning the vacant places in your mind, the places where you don't know what the card is, you can estimate what the probability is that your card will be in any given player's hand. Right. So I think what we're taking from that is people are trying to size up what every other character is holding here. Like Ray is trying to get a read on Emmett. Emmett's trying to get a read on Varga. Varga already has a read on everyone. I think for Varga, there are no vacant places. He has thought this out through and through. But it will be interesting to see how the bridge philosophy plays into the ongoing season. So we're definitely going to bring a bridge expert on because... Again, after watching this, I was like, how do they do it? How? This is a game? I had no idea how this worked at all. Yeah. Well, and what telling detail of Bridge that we see in the dialogue between Ray and Nikki is that when you can connect with your partner, right? You can't table talks. So you can't be talking with your partner about what's going on at the table. But if you can sort of look into your partner's eyes and just know what they're holding, what they're going to do, that's how you succeed. Simpatico to the point of spooky. One more thing I want to talk about. We have heard that there's going to be some commentary on technology in this season, right? Noah Hawley has hinted that in 2010, we've got smartphones. He's going to be making some comments on people's relationship to technology. And we saw that this episode in the form of Ray and Nikki in the bathtub together in presumably, you know, a very like victorious, potentially erotic moment. But they're sitting sort of Ray's like leaning on Nikki's like legs and they're both like tapping away at their smartphones in Incisive commentary or just a little boring? I don't know. I don't know. Or just like trying to remind us like, it's 2010. There are smartphones. I don't know. We'll see. There's always this thing when you're watching heist movies or crime movies where you're like, why don't they just use their cell phones? Um, So I'm interesting to see if he's going to be able to pull off any of those same misunderstandings and quirks in this season. Yeah. And one way we certainly don't know it's 2010 is the music. We are not hearing the music of 2010 on the soundtrack. We're hearing old school soulful, actually a lot of songs in sort of foreign languages and this air of they're, they're like pop songs, but they're performed in foreign languages. So it sort of adds this like air of weirdness to what otherwise sounds familiar. There was also some Tuvan throat singing that came on in this really eerie moment moment in the house where Gloria is trying to figure out what happened to Ennis and she's kind of searching and this yeah really raw Tuvan throat singing comes on which reminds me that these people are musical geniuses they will pull out the most unexpected thing and it makes it so much better Cossack's choir in there in East Berlin. Eerie indeed. 
Okay, so a big thing that everyone's talking about lately, the New York Times, the Rolling Stone, and us, are the connections between the TV show and the Coen Brothers' original films. And not just Fargo, but their entire oeuvre. So uh, we went ahead and sat down with Fred Bukema, who is a local Twin Cities structural engineer. He's also a Fargo, not super fan, aficionado. And we have an interview with him talking about the connections he's seen between the show and the Coen Brothers. Welcome, Fred. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. I understand uh, you don't want us to use the word super fan. Yeah, gross. Fair enough. Fair (laughs) enough. Um, No super fans here, just aficionados. (laughs) And so we have Fred here today because he has this obsession in tracking the connections between the original Coen Brothers movie and the television show. Fred, how did this happen? I'd seen all the Coen Brothers movies, starting with the original Fargo when I was in high school and kind of caught up with their catalog and saw each new movie after that and really loved them. And they're one of my favorite uh, filmmakers. And when the first season was announced, I thought, that's a terrible idea. Why would you try to adapt that movie, which is a great movie, into a TV show? And I was pleasantly surprised as I was starting to hear news about who was involved and really enjoyed the first season. Like I really liked what they did with it. I liked that it had a lot of the flavor of the original, but kind of expanded it in new directions and were able to use the fact that it's a TV show to explore side characters in more depth and go off on these little tangents. Of course, part of that was that I, I loved how they had all these little nods to not just the original movie, but to the whole Cohen body of work. And I didn't do anything like formally with it. I I didn't start writing anything down when I was watching that first season. But then after watching the first episode of season two, I don't know, I was I was kind of intrigued by the fact that it was so pervasive. And I was excited that they weren't just referencing the original, but they were bringing in stuff from The Big Lebowski or Miller's Crossing and just like the entire body of work. And so I started just idly jotting down what I noticed and putting it on my personal blog, and it became a, a, a regular thing. It seemed like a direction that the second season went in to really show how the show was going to grow over the course of multiple seasons was that there were references dropped, as you say, not just to the original Fargo movie, which was mm-hmm. very much you know, the touch point for the first season, but the entire Coen Brothers filmography. Mm-hmm. How many Coen Brothers movies did you catch references to over the course of the two seasons? I think... Almost all of them. The only movie of theirs that had come out by the time the second season aired that I couldn't find a reference to was Inside Lewin Davis, which at that time was the most recent. And it's entirely possible that I missed something along the way, like a you know maybe an LP in the background or something like that. But of course, there's different levels of references. There's very specific things that kind of jump out to people who know their movies, like very specific choices of word or phrase. Like if somebody says friendo or unguent or something like that, you're like, oh, okay, that's that's referencing a specific moment in one of the other movies. But then sometimes it's a little bit more general. So what are some of your other favorite references that you just saw and you were like, ah, I see what you're doing there? Well, I think I think my favorite in the whole second season was, it was close to the beginning of the last episode. There was this... Uh, sequence where uh, Betsy Salverson describes a dream that she had about the future of her family. And we actually get to see the actors from the first season return 
to play the characters and she's imagining this future that she will never experience uh, after her death of this close and happy family gathered at the at the family table and that down to specific word choices and, and the way that it's written and presented parallels uh, in Raising Arizona Ed's dream of a hypothetical future for her family. It was just, it was so well executed and it wasn't enough of a word for word, note for note that it felt gratuitous or like, oh, we're just going to rip this off. It was very grounded in the emotions of the character and of that point in the season. That's a great example to choose because it shows how these Cohen references aren't just Easter eggs, right? like little you know references dropped for the true fans, yeah. but really are ways to connect the material thematically mm-hmm. as well. So this is really interesting to me because the relationship between Noah Hawley, who created and runs the TV show, mm-hmm. and the Coen brothers, who obviously did the movie, mm-hmm. is also an interesting relationship, right? The Coen brothers have been very hands-off about mm-hmm. the series. They've said publicly they're just not that interested in it. They don't really see the point, yeah. right? And yet Hawley is, like, making it like a love letter to these people who don't care, right? He's, he's something... the super fan. He's... Yeah, <laughs> right. We can call him a super fan. But in some ways, it's like if they're not even watching it, he's, like, throwing out these love letters to people who aren't going to appreciate <laughs> them like what's happening here I don't know I mean it's it's to all of our benefit but uh, uh, I, I would be fascinated to know if they have ever seen even a, a moment of the show it's so interesting to watch this show from a Minnesota perspective because it certainly is as we've discussed often on the show or the podcast it's it's not the Minnesota, it's not literally Minnesota. It's not filmed right. in Minnesota. The places don't always look the way the actual place look in Minnesota. It's this vision of Minnesota sort of filtered through the world of Fargo, the movie, filtered mm-hmm. through you know this show that's like conceived outside mm-hmm. of Minnesota and filmed outside of Minnesota. And yet it does, you know, harken back to the Minnesota where the Coen brothers actually mm-hmm. did grow up. And there are some very direct references. I feel like that goes not just for the way Minnesota, but the way that humans are represented. It, it kind of has that flavor of magical realism that so many of the Coen Brothers films have where it's very specific, very precise, and occasionally outlandish things like a UFO might happen, but it still has that grounding in an emotional reality between the individual characters and their relationship to their environment or their job or the law or duty or violence or whatever it is. And I don't know. That's that's one of the things that I like about the movies in general and about, about the show as well. So we've been talking about some sort of high level thematic connections, <laughs> but let's get to the the, the, gory, the real juicy yeah, yeah, details. Yeah. You've got your long list there. Oh, yeah. So what are some of the really like you what do you call them Easter eggs or whatever? What are the references that people would miss if they even blinked? You know, there's things like uh, in the the first season, there's a, a, a drink special for white Russians in the background. In Season two, the the UFO uh, shows up a few times throughout the season, and that seems like an element borrowed from the man who wasn't there. And in both the movie and in the show, it shows up at one specific moment to make a small change in the situation for the characters that kind of pushes the, the plot in a different direction. One thing that they did in the second season that they didn't do in the first was a lot of musical references. And that was something I really enjoyed, that they had all of these covers of songs that had been in Coen Brothers movies. And so you had songs from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, You had a cover of Condition from The Big Lebowski. 
there was one kind of sideways reference that is almost so many degrees removed that it could almost be an accident, but I have to believe that it was intentional. There's a song uh, used at the beginning of episode three. They've got this montage sort of checking in on all the different characters and where they're at at that point. And the music is this sort of pop funk with a Japanese chorus. Oh, yeah, I remember that and song. I, and it sounded really cool. I liked it immediately, and I wanted to know more about it. And in looking up the origin of that uh, music, it apparently was part of a project from the late 70s by a French musician, uh, actually a guy who is a fa- the father of one of the two musicians from Daft Punk. He put a Japanese-language pop-funk project together. One of the other songs from that project was used in the end credits of a movie, which is a dramatization of an urban legend about the movie Fargo. That's right. That's where a Japanese woman comes to Minnesota looking for the money in Fargo. She thinks it's a documentary, not a movie, as we all know She buys into the, this is a true story. And so she thinks that there's... There's money buried somewhere in the snow. Right. And uh, yeah, they made a movie about yes. this urban legend. Right. OK, so that makes sense that they were using music that could have potentially referenced this and fictionalization of a Coen Brothers so movie. It's so sideways. And I have to imagine that was so little seen compared to any given Coen Brothers movie that it would just sort of slip by unnoticed. But I, given that connection, I have to imagine it was intentional. So Fred. <laughs> What is your favorite Coen Brothers movie? Uh, that's hard. I would probably have to say Big Lebowski because that's the one that I go back to over and over again. As just It's such a fun movie to rewatch over and over again. The original Fargo is up there for me, and No Country for Old Men is such, I don't know, almost like a perfect movie. Uh, but probably Big Lebowski is my personal favorite. Shouldn't you be wearing a sweater then if you're going <laughs> to walk the walk? Okay, for the record, I know you can't see him, but Fred is not wearing a Big Lebowski sweater right now. Okay, so let's not talk nuance or Easter eggs or like that. Let's talk sheer numbers here. How many references um, did you catch to Coen Brothers movies in season two? In season two, I found around 60. That's crazy. Different references. And some of them are very specific. Some are broad. There are a couple that I may very well be wrong and just reading too much into it. All right. Well, so we will put up a link to your blog post so everyone can check out Fred's list. um, And we'll keep this conversation going if you catch something that Fred didn't and that we didn't either. Um, You can find that on social in our write-ups. Fred, thank you again. Uh, Again, he's not a super fan. (laughs) He's an aficionado. He wants you to know he does not have Fargo bed sheets or a Fargo lunchbox or any maybe a Fargo thermos. That'd be cool. That'd be cool. Um, Thank you again for joining us, My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Fred. Oddgees is produced by Tracy Mumford, Jake Abler, and Anna Reed. Our theme music is by the Valdons, courtesy of Secret Stash Records. We're live tweeting the episodes, yes, with gifts on Twitter at Oddgees Podcast. That's A W J E E Z Podcast. Okay, then. Bye now. 